You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 137, interview with prosecutors, John Cotton Richmond and Victor Boutros. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, I'm so glad that uh, folks have joined us for today's episode because uh, you've been telling me about the gentleman joining us today and their experience. And I'm really excited to uh, learn more because I know we're going to get a great perspective on uh, that'll help us to even further our, our efforts on studying the issues, being a voice and making a difference in ending human trafficking. Well, I'm very honored and excited about our guest today. We have Victor Butros and John Cotton Richmond. And Victor uh, previously served as a federal prosecutor in the Justice Department's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit and trained law enforcement from different parts of the world on how to investigate and prosecute human trafficking. I'm really excited because he's co-author with Gary Hagen of The Locus Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence, which was already on my winter break reading list. So um, I'm a little bit starstruck and we'll try and get an autographed copy from him. Um, earlier this year, Victor and Mr. Haugen received the Graumeyer Prize for Ideas Impacting World Order, awarded annually to the authors of one world-changing book based on originality, feasibility, and potential impact. Victor is a graduate of Baylor University, Harvard University, Oxford University, and the University of Chicago. We know what you collect, Victor. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we also have John Cotton Richmond. John previously served as a federal prosecutor in the Justice Department's Human Trafficking um, Prosecution Unit as well. And he's an expert on human trafficking for the United Nations and at the European Union. He was named one of the Prosecutors of the Year by the Federal Law Enforcement Foundation and twice earned Department of Justice Special Commendation Award. He co-designed the Advanced Human Trafficking Curriculum for Federal Agents. And before joining Department of Justice, he served as the Director of the International Justice Mission Slavery Work in India. He's a graduate of Wake Forest University School of Law and University of Mary Washington. He lives in Virginia with his wife and three children. And I included that here because that's part of his brief file. And I always love to know more about our guests and, and their families and how, how they've made choices to do this kind of work as part of who they are. So I think my first question for both of you is the launch of the Human Trafficking Institute. This is what you're doing together. Why are you doing it? How does this fit who you are, and what you want to accomplish. So thankful for your question, Sandy. Uh, We're so excited about the Human Trafficking Institute and what it can accomplish. It really comes out of our experience working on trafficking cases on the front lines for so many years. Um, 
whether it was when I was in India with um, International Justice Mission. Uh, my family and I lived there for a little over three years doing slavery cases, both forced labor as well as sex trafficking, um, or at the Department of Justice as we founded the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit within the DOJ and began to, to expand the opportunity for um, federal prosecutors and federal agents to do trafficking cases domestically, um, we just began to see a lot of patterns in cases. We spent a lot of time with individual victims, learning their story and helping them through the criminal process of prosecuting their traffickers. But we also spent a lot of time with the traffickers themselves, and we heard their stories. Um, and we began to understand how they view the crime. One of the things that we began to notice is that most of our anti-human trafficking activities fall into one of three categories. On the one side, it falls into this idea of how do we make people less vulnerable to traffickers? So we do things like awareness campaigns to let people know about their rights, and we try to do poverty alleviation work to help people um, have less felt needs so that traffickers have fewer things to exploit. But what we've noticed is that that has very little impact on the trafficker's business model. Um, even if our efforts at vulnerability reduction are wildly successful, there are still 2 billion people living on less than $2 a day and people aging out of a fractured foster care system for them to exploit. And the other category on the other side is how do we care for survivors? And a lot of our activities go towards survivor care, which is essential and needs to be increased. We're looking at trauma-informed counseling for victims, job skills, medical care, tattoo removal, all sorts of things that might be tailored to an individual survivor's needs. But those efforts, too, don't stop traffickers. I was talking to a trafficker not too long ago, and he was preparing to testify against his co-defendants. Um, on break, the agents and I were with him, and he said, hey, are the girls in a shelter? And I, I sort of said, you know, I'm not telling you where the girls are. And he just laughed. And he said, you all put so much energy into shelters. We're done with them. And what he was saying is that he doesn't care about the names and the faces of the people he exploits. And by us caring for the people that he's already discarded, that he's already done exploiting, we're not interfering with his business model of exploiting new people. And so what we learned is that we're getting better and better at caring for survivors, and we need to improve that and continue to expand our efforts there, but we're not getting better and better at stopping traffickers from harming more victims that are going to need our improving survivor care. And so we began to think about how do we actually stop the traffickers? And Sandy, what, what's exciting to me about that is by moving upstream and not just um, focusing on mitigating the consequences of trafficking, which we have to do, we can actually begin to stop the root, stop trafficking at its root. Uh, this is not true in some other areas. We talked about uh, earthquakes and the way in which once you have an earthquake, you can't really stop the earthquake, but you have to just care for the victims. But in this case, because it's a human being that's making a choice to prefer forced labor and using violence to extort forced labor from people, that we can actually change and stop trafficking if we stop the trafficker from making that decision. But that requires law enforcement. Only law enforcement has the authority to actually stop traffickers. And what we've seen is that in many parts of the developing world, trafficking is exploding, 
in places where the law is not being enforced. So, in some developing countries, we've seen that you're literally more likely to be struck by lightning than go to jail for openly owning slaves. So then when you're talking about going upstream and, and you're making this uh, comparison with with earthquake victims and human trafficking victims, if there's no um, legal um, remedies on the ground there, then then what what can what can we do? And is that what the Human Trafficking Institute is taking on? It is. Uh, it, you know what we want to do is empower local criminal justice systems to actually take the protections that are written on parchment paper in laws, things that are passed by parliaments and congresses out there that say trafficking shouldn't happen. But we have to bring those in a meaningful way to the victims that are currently being exploited. And the way to do that is through law enforcement. You know, if we think about it in a different context, take um, if there were a rash of burglaries in a community and someone was going in and they were stealing things from homes, um, you know, we could do a bunch of awareness raising campaigns to let the community know that there's an increase in burglaries. We could have campaigns to improve the lighting around to make homes less vulnerable. We could put better locks on the doors. We could do all these sorts of things on the awareness side. Or we could also just care for the people who've been victims of the burglars. We could have support groups for them and in mutual insurance companies to help them replace the stolen goods. But at some point, the community is going to rise up and say, someone stop the burglars. Someone stop the people that are actually inflicting this harm. And what we see from so many is that that's what the world's crying out for is we want to stop this explosion of trafficking. And the way that it must be done is we must stop the traffickers who are making an intentional choice to commit this crime. Okay, so so this is like the best, um, you're actually convincing me that prosecution is the key to ending human trafficking. Um, I've always, people who have listened to me now for, for a few years, you know I'm always just hammering on prevention. But explain exactly um, how you can take this, I know you've done it, and Victor, you've done it with, with your Department of Justice roles, but how are you going to do this? I was in Romania last year, did training for investigators, but their complaint was now they can't get the cases um, prosecuted. So really what we see is that you've got to have three things in place to be effective at enforcing the law. You've got to have the laws on the books, and we've seen tremendous progress in that area. So now I think every country in the world has laws against human trafficking. But then you've also got to have the political will to enforce those laws. That is, the actual police and, and prosecutors and judges have to want to enforce the law. And we've also seen a transformation in political will that's taken place, in part through some different instruments that have created political pressure and economic incentives for countries to begin to, 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 to measurably reduce trafficking within their borders. But the challenge that we're seeing right now is that the third component, which is really the capacity to enforce the law, is a, is a tremendous challenge. So, for instance, in places like India, 85% of the police receive virtually no training in criminal investigation, much less the ability to actually go and conduct a proactive human trafficking investigation and prosecution. 
And so in some ways, if you think about what that must be like, it, it's like if we were thrown into a developing world hospital and given scrubs and a, and a mask and a scalpel and told, okay, now your family's livelihood depends on your ability to go, con- to, to go uh, do cataract surgery on this line of patients out the door. At that point, it really doesn't matter how incentivized we are. It doesn't matter how smart we are or how well-intentioned we are. I can't do cataract surgery. And so this capacity gap is a huge need and part of the, the, the core need that we want to participate in helping countries uh, develop. One thing we, we noticed, to go, to go off what Victor was just saying, is as we traveled internationally to train law enforcement prosecutors and judges, and we did that on behalf of the Department of State or Homeland Security or Justice, we did it with the United Nations and others, we put on these trainings, much like the training you were probably at in Romania, where there's a lot of activity, um, there's a lot of good effort, people are working really hard to communicate best practices, but the reality is very little changes on the ground after those trainings. And it's because those trainings don't conform to how people best learn. They don't conform to how we build human capital in any other area. Take, for instance, um, someone who is going to become a physician. There's a, there's a core um, experience of gaining knowledge. That's going to medical school. But then there's also this component of residency, of working under an experienced practitioner who, who can help them develop the skills. Welders get their tools in trade and then apprentice. FBI agents go to the academy at Quantico and then get a field training officer. And there's just nothing like that long-term investment in the developing world for criminal justice practitioners. And that's what we want to do. We want to help solve that problem. And the way that we'll do it is really by doing three things. We want to join partner countries who are serious about seeing decimating their trafficking in their borders. And we want to first help them vet and build specialized investigative and prosecutorial units and fast-track courts. That is, police and prosecutors whose sole focus and job becomes enforcing human trafficking laws. And then second, we want to take those specialized units through a specialized academy where they're going to begin to gather the core knowledge that they need to, to be effective and develop some of the skills to be effective. So that might include how to do better case investigation or how to conduct a raid or how to actually do trauma-informed victim interviews, how to corroborate your case, how to build a successful trial strategy. But then once they go back to the, to the unit and begin to work cases, they will have the third component, which is uh, a law enforcement mentor who's actually been successful at investigating and prosecuting human trafficking cases that's officing with them and helping them day in and day out to develop their skills and to solve any case-related complications that may arise, kind of like a residency. And using those three components, we can begin to get that little bit of enforcement that brings about a large deterrent effect. And Sandy, what is so exciting about this outline that Victor just gave of building the specialized units, the skills training through an academy, and then also having these embedded experts to work cases together is that we know this works because it's worked before. This is very similar to the model that we employed at the Department of Justice in the innovation called ACT Teams. 
and they were rolled out, and Victor and I got to be a part of the implementation and creation of this with our colleagues at DOJ. But six federal districts were selected in the first phase of the ACT teams. And in those six districts, we employed this basic model of, in a sense, creating a specialized type unit within law enforcement, helping give them a curriculum of training that was focused on best practices. And then we would fly to the, to the cities. We'd work cases day in and day out with those prosecutors and agents. And those six districts in two years saw an increase of 114% in the number of traffickers charged while the other 88 districts only saw a 12% increase. And amazingly, in those first two years, those six districts were responsible for over 50% of the nation's human trafficking convictions. That is 50%, 56% of all the human trafficking convictions during those two years came from just those six districts. So we wanna take this proven model and we wanna employ it in the developing world where trafficking is exploding. Wow. So, so then that, that, that act team, then it, you just keep going back and doing that again, six more, six more until you've covered every district. You know, we're so excited. The act team process was picked up for a round two and six new districts in the United States were chosen to be a part of it through a competitive process. The other six districts that were in the first phase are still getting supported by the Department of Justice, FBI, and Homeland Security, and the Department of Labor. Um, and so hopefully that will one day become a funded project and, um, and can expand to every district in the United States. Okay, so now then, um, this academy approach of, of core knowledge with skills and the mentor seems to be the key component that really is transformative in your approach. Um, can you, can you tell me how we can, we can be as a community, a part of supporting that agenda in, especially because a lot of our listeners are working in other countries. So it's great that there's funding here in the U S but how is somebody going to look at that model and say, we want to do that in, um, in Argentina, for example? Well, I think, one thing that everybody can do is um, is begin to be informed about the dynamics of trafficking. I think when I first learned about trafficking, there was this, this incredible sense of being overwhelmed both by the scope of it, understanding that there are now something like 20.9 million victims globally, and honestly just by the, by the horrific nature of the crime. It seemed just uh, like so, that so... Um, evil to see traffickers using people essentially as property for their own profit. And I think what's hard for us is to continue to draw near to the pain of trafficking when deep in our hearts we feel like there really isn't any clear and tangible hope. And for some of the people that I visit with, there is that sense that whatever you tell me is going to just be a drop in the ocean. And I think what they're seeing in part is that as trafficking uh, continues to rise, spinning off more and more victims, we're pouring more and more resources into more and more aftercare, but there's this sense of it, that it's just this black hole of need and that we're not making a dent. And so I think what's exciting for me and something that I think can, everybody can be a part of is beginning to understand why there is such clear, tangible hope and the way in which trafficking is incredibly sensitive to risk. That is, 
traffickers are making a decision to choose forced labor instead of voluntary labor because they know in many parts of the world they're not going to get in trouble for that. And so as we begin to uh, equip law enforcement to begin to create a cost for traffickers, once traffickers have to risk having their profits seized, losing their business, losing their freedom, going to jail, then we begin to see huge drops in the prevalence of trafficking, which means not only are those victims then able to get the aftercare and support that they need, but that a whole future stream of victims that might have gone through the horrible trauma of trafficking get to do whatever it is they were made to do. And to me, it's that clear and tangible hope that allows us to draw near to trafficking and begin to think in innovative and creative ways about how we can support those who are in trafficking and hurting from it and how we can begin to see moving upstream to stop the crime at its source. I, I'm really energized by hearing you talk about the traffickers so um, knowledge, knowledgeably because mostly we talk about the victims, how to identify victims, how to um, how to implement survivor-led um, advocacy. But tell me more about how to identify a trafficker. Well, I think all the efforts on victim identification and victim care are, are essential, and those have to be part of a comprehensive approach to to stop trafficking. We're, we're trying to advance the idea that in addition to that, not in place of it, but in addition to that, we also need to identify the traffickers. We need to find these individuals that are choosing to commit this crime. And this is what law enforcement is good at, is identifying criminals. If we can give them the political will and the resources available to go out and do proactive investigations, both in sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking cases, to, uh, so that we can find these cases and rescue the victims. But once we rescue the victims, or once the victims are no longer being exploited, we have to recognize that if the traffickers aren't stopped, they're just going to exploit more people. And I think that there's been a great concern that these traffickers are getting away. They're getting away and they're active in exploiting others. And if there's impunity for traffickers, they just continue. And so we identify them through investigations. We identify them through cases. And they come in all shapes and sizes and races and genders. Um, we just have to make sure that we're, we're focused on the evidence and um, where the crime is being committed. We, we do a lot of training here locally for healthcare providers, especially when they're on the front line and making sure the victim is safe um, because they're often brought into an emergency clinic with the trafficker. Um, trafficker identification really hasn't been on our radar. We just assume that someone is watching them. Uh, is Do you have any, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm so encouraged by the idea that I could be better at, at um, training, um, de- for example, emergency departments for, to be more alert to who is with the victim. I think that's right. We do see traffickers engaging in a fair amount of physical coercion that's not always violent. It's just physical presence sometimes. And so whether they go with a victim to a hospital um, as a way to monitor and make sure what they're saying is it fits the narrative the trafficker wants, um, you know, that certainly would be a place where where some traffickers have uh, appeared in the past. And sometimes they're just hiding in the shadows um, or sometimes they're working in an office. Or sometimes they're they're at their house. Um, we just have to be focused on the fact that if there's if there is a victim that's identified, 
That victim is not identified in a vacuum. There was a trafficker that exploited that victim, and that trafficker must be dealt with in order for that case to be successful and for that victim to find a, a way to rescue herself or himself, as well as to make sure other individuals are not trafficked. So um, one more question before I give each of you a closing statement, because I know you're really good at that. Um, talk to me just briefly about labor trafficking. It's kind of like um, a sleeping giant that's just beginning to be more recognized, at least here in the U.S., yeah, labor trafficking actually, at least based on some global numbers that come out of the ILO, seems to be a larger proportion of trafficking victims globally than sex trafficking, although sex trafficking seems to be more lucrative. So I think the ILO estimated that of the $150 billion in annual profits that come from trafficking, which is just a staggering number, that that, that means that traffickers are, are bringing in more than Apple Samsung, Microsoft, BP, and Exxon combined. Wow. And yet the vast majority of those profits are from sex trafficking. So about $100 billion is from sex trafficking. But sex trafficking is tends to be easier to find for a couple of reasons. One is the actual industry itself is illegal in many locations. So you've got a, you've got a, a crime, commercial sex, taking place. And you often have police units, vice units, or the equivalent of vice units that are actively involved in looking for that type of crime where you're likely to find lots of sex trafficking victims. Uh, whereas on the labor trafficking side, it's typically a perfectly legitimate industry. You've got hotels and restaurants and brick kilns and rock quarries, and there's nothing illegal about those operations in themselves. What's illegal is that they're using forced labor. But the challenge is that unlike in sex trafficking, you may never see the laborer that's cleaning your hotel room or the, the person who's washing the dishes in the restaurant. And in sex, the very nature of the case is that every victim has to come into contact with the customers. So there's, there's lots of opportunities to interdict directly between um, uh, when the victim's exposed to those outside the trafficking enterprise. So labor trafficking cases are definitely harder to identify, even though we think that they may be a larger proportion of the trafficking that's taking place globally. I'm just struck by how important it is for us to understand that these are people being coerced or forced into doing an activity that isn't illegal. And that's um, an important piece of, of what we have to figure out locally in order to do a better job of identifying labor trafficking. Here in Orange County, we've had a significant amount of labor trafficking victims identified, but not prosecuting uh, very many cases. So um, closing remarks, uh, can you tell us, our listening uh, community, what we can do to move this forward? You know, I think there are a number of things that we can do. Um, but I just want to start with this sense that trafficking is not inevitable. It is, we are not just left trying to mitigate the consequences of trafficking forever, sort of like we're left trying to mitigate the consequences of people who suffer from natural disasters like earthquakes. We can actually stop trafficking by getting to its root cause, which is the trafficker. And I think that is just incredibly hopeful. 
And as we do that, a practical thing that we all can do is get better informed and learn. And not just learn stories and anecdotes, but actually learn what's happening and the trends that we're seeing in cases and traffickers. There's been some absolutely remarkable cases this year. Um, decisions that have come down from courts on unbelievably compelling facts that are advancing the law. And to get familiar with those cases and understand what is happening, I think can be an incredibly empowering and hopeful experience. That's why I'm excited that we're going to get a chance to talk about some of those actual cases um, at the Ensure Justice Conference in March. Um, and that'll just be a wonderful opportunity for people to, um, to begin to advance their knowledge about how to approach this crime. Well, John, thank you. I really appreciate the fact that you're going to be here March 3rd and 4th for Ensured Justice. And we're looking forward to empowering our community to be moving forward. I'm so excited that um, you say over and over again, we can stop human trafficking. And Victor, you get your closing remarks as well. So inspire us one more time. Well, the other thing I would just say is that uh, unlike other types of, of interventions, we, we talked a little bit about the, the public health situation. Um, if you've got 100 patients who need cataract surgery, you have to do 100 surgeries. But trafficking is this incredible opportunity where if we just prosecute a few traffickers, we start to see lots and lots of other traffickers abandoning forced labor because it becomes too risky, which means that by doing a little bit of enforcement, we can not only help the existing victims who are being exploited to get the help that they need, but we can also prevent this, this whole future stream of victims from being exploited in the first place and going through that trauma and spending years trying to recover from that trauma. The other implication that I think is so important is we, we uh, many of your listeners I know probably care about the poor deeply and maybe even give toward really important causes like poverty alleviation or education or uh, uh, microloans, other really wonderful programs. But the challenge that we've seen is that many of these wonderful resources that are especially pouring in the developing world are not doing much good for those who are actually trapped in a brothel or who are locked away in a slave compound. So by participating and helping resource those that are actually stopping trafficking at its source, we can not only rescue them from the, the terrible trauma that they're going through, but we can actually wedge open this bottleneck that's choking out some of these other wonderful efforts that are already there to serve people and help them uh, to flourish and achieve their dreams. Thank you both. Our time ran out and Dave is waving at me. But I, I want to ask you right now, if you'll come back on this podcast in the future, both of you, we would just love to have you again. We would be honored to. Okay. Sounds wonderful, Sandy. Great. And John, we'll see you in March. Dave, thank you Can't so wait. much. This was really an energizing interview. In, indeed. Uh, thank you so much to John and to Victor for uh, your perspective and your important work. As Sandy mentioned, there's so many different aspects of looking at this and prosecutions. One of the key key keys uh, in, in the efforts uh, against human trafficking. And so I'm really excited to uh, hear the presentation coming up at Ensure Justice, Sandy. And uh, I'm glad that came up in today's conversation because the Ensure Justice Conference is coming up this March. For folks who are interested in registering, where should they go? 
vanguard.edu.gcwj, or you can just do insurejustice.com, and there'll be a registration link there right now. Perfect. And as always, if you have a comment or question about anything you've heard on the show today from John or Victor or Sandy, uh, we hope that you'll take a moment to reach out to us. You can email us at gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. Or you can also call us 714-966-6360. And if you're not already registered for Insure Justice, Head on over to that address, insurejustice.com, right, Sandy? Yes. Get over there. We'll uh, look forward to seeing you in March. Thanks, Sandy. Take care. Bye.